reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. The people of Judah and the citizens of Jerusalem said, Come, let us contrive a plot against Jeremiah. It will not mean the loss of instruction from the priest, nor of counsel from the wise, nor of messages from the prophets. And so let us destroy him by his own tongue. Let us carefully note his every word. Heed me, O Lord, and listen to what my adversaries say. Must good be repaid with evil, that they should dig a pit to take my life. Remember that I stood before you to speak in their behalf, to turn away your wrath from them. Verbum Domini. <clears throat> Save me, O Lord, in your kindness. You will free me from the snare they set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commend my spirit. You will redeem me, O Lord, O faithful God. I hear the whispers of the crowd that frighten me from every side as they consult together against me, plotting to take my life. But my trust is in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God, and your hands is my destiny, rescue me from the clutches of my enemies and my persecutors. Dominus Fabiscum. Lexio Sancti Evangelii Secundum Mateum. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. 
Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee approached Jesus with her sons and did him homage, wishing to ask him for something. He said to her, what do you wish? She answered him, command that these two sons of mine sit one at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus said in reply, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the chalice that I am going to drink? They said to him, we can. He replied, my chalice you will indeed drink, but to sit at my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard this, they became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus summoned them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones make their, authority make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great, you shall be, shall, you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And so the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verbum Domini. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. That's good news for us, because we can all be servants. I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. said that. Anybody could be great, because anybody could be served. That's the logic of Christianity. And it's the logic of Christianity, because that's how Jesus is our Messiah, our Savior. And Matthew and Mark's, and Mark's Gospel, he gives three passion predictions. Today, Matthew 20, he's given the third passion prediction, saying, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. To be mocked, scourged, crucified, he'll ra be raised on the third day. Up to Jerusalem for the big climax of his three years of public ministry. And they're still misunderstanding these passion predictions. I think the same is true for us. When we hit the cross in our lives and stuff, it's bewildering. When we hit suffering, it can be bewildering and disorienting, trying to find scramble uh, for meaning in it. But as a Christian, we know that that is how we're saved, by the cross of Christ. And also, as disciples, we're called to take up our cross and follow him. We hear that in some of these passion predictions as well, what it means to be a disciple, that we share in his cross, we share in those sufferings. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, come up to Jesus and he asks, he asks her, what do you wish? Command that these two sons of mine sit one at your right, the other at your left in your kingdom. We see in the scriptures, at times, some misunderstanding about the kingdom. Earlier in chapter 1, in Matthew's gospel, there was a line that 
I said, the followers have said, you know, the kingdom, they're expecting the kingdom to appear immediately. In Acts of the Apostles, at the time of his ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? This immediate fulfillment of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel in a worldly sense. Jesus' response to her, you do not know what you're asking. He's going to be crucified between two thieves at Calvary on the city garbage dump. That's what it means to be at his right and left. Can you drink the chalice that I'm going to drink? Remember in Gethsemane, when he's both the night before his passion and he's suffering that, that bloody sweat in the garden, he speaks of that coming suffering as a chalice, as the cup. Not my will, but thine be done. Let this chalice pass for me, but let your will be done, Father, not mine. In the Old Testament, we see a cup of judgment that's emptied upon the godless nations due to their wickedness, this cup of suffering. Here, though, with Jesus, speaking of his suffering and also that sharing the cup with him, speaking of that mystery of substitution that he's suffering for us and that we're called to share in that redemptive suffering. Then he gives them a teaching to kind of untwist this worldly way of thinking about greatness, that the great ones make their authority felt, shouldn't be so amongst yourselves. You know, the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, to give his ransom, uh, for, to give his life as a ransom for many. Earlier, you know, St. Joseph, in a dream, the angel tells him about his son, that he will save his people from their sins. He is to give his life as a ransom for us. You know, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't seem to correct their desire for greatness. You know, that's great if we have that desire to be great in the kingdom. Just got to order it right. We have to understand the kingdom. I mean, today we have a great apathy towards things of religion. We yawn when people talk theology or speak of the kingdom or speak of holiness or speak of service. It's not too exciting. It's not too dazzling to be a servant, to be hidden. So he's telling them to be great and serve and to share in his sacrifice, to give his life as a ransom for many. Worldly authority, the subjects serve the master. Christian authority, we speak of a servant leadership, that all authority is given to lay people and sacred orders, holy orders alike. Authority is given in order to serve. We see in the priesthood, to help the people of God unfold their roles of priest, prophet, and king that they share in Jesus's life as well. You know, to proclaim the truth, this kingly authority is exercised in serving. 
and of course to help administer the sacraments that the lay people may be holy. And the lay people in turn are sent into the world to transform the world, to be servants in the world. So power is given to us, to the priest to confect the sacraments, the Eucharist, minister the sacraments, to preach, special authority power is given there, and the, the sanctity given to the lay people, you're, made, you're given charisms of the Holy Spirit, you're made holy, you're made temples of the Holy Spirit to guide you, to strengthen you. That power is given in order to serve to sanctify the world, the temporal order. That's the mission of the laity. So in all this, Cardinal Henry de Lubac would see that there's a temptation for a, a spiritual worldliness, that the kingdom is of a heavenly nature rather than an earthly nature. It comes from above. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus tells us. As the temptation for us is to look at the kingdom in worldly terms of honor and prestige. Pope Pius XII, when he issued the dogma of the assumption, he said the great benefit which mankind will draw from the definition of the assumption lies in the fact that it will turn men towards the glory of the most holy trinity. We're looking up, seeing Mary in the glorified state, she's in heaven today, to look upwards, O oh man, to see that that is the values, those are the standards that we live by. Seek the glory of God versus the glory of the world. To have that as our standard, does this glorify God or does this glorify myself and the world? We see this modeled perfectly in Mary, in her Magnificat, she says, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Everything in her being, her immaculate conception, her virginal conception of Christ, her assumption, it proclaims the greatness of the Lord, his work in her. At the Annunciation, she is the poor handmaid of the Lord. She proclaims herself that handmaid, that servant of the Lord. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. You know, God is doing great things for me, for her. She extols his mercy, his strength. He has come to the help of his servant Israel. He's bending down to us to raise us up. Her sanctity is the perfection of faith, hope, and love. These theological virtues, virtues that unite her with God. She is the ideal figure of the church. She's the mirror in which the whole church is reflected. She's the type and model of the church. In a sense, we say she carries the church within her, contained, um, contained within her, her womb. She's the mother of the church. So all our moral and spiritual standards should be based on the glory of the Lord versus the profit of man. And this is the key to humility that the apostles struggle with a lot. You know, they, they're always arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. 
Yeah, they're, they're walking 20 yards behind Jesus, arguing. He can't overhear them. <laughs> but that's what they're arguing at different points in the gospel. Who is the greatest by worldly standards? That the, the essence of humility has this reference to God. It's a right reason of our stance to God, our relationship to God, that we are the creature, he is the creator. And the virtue of humility restrains our striding, striving for things beyond us, beyond what we are to have. Humility is a preeminently Christian virtue. The ancient philosophers didn't say much, if anything, about humility. It comes with faith. God is first. It's his glory that we are seeking. Two solus sanctus, he alone is holy. That, all, that holiness, that majesty comes from him, that we are called to share in that through transformation by grace that's completely dependent on him. And for us today, the message the church is reminding us in these passages that we're saved through the cross. We're saved through that servanthood that we're called to to serve others, to be humble, to be lowly, to seek God's will in all things.